In this episode, I'm going to read Breathless by John Tranter from his collection of poems, Urban Myths. Breathless. It was an autumn evening after a meeting at Masterson's. Four of them stood on the steps. I could do with a meal, Hunter said. He really wanted to talk more with Sandra. Florentini's is the only place in Sydney, proclaimed Lovelock, a young painter with thick red hair. What do you think? Sandra, thirties, clever, a pretty blonde wearing a plaid skirt and sky blue top, agreed enthusiastically. It's just the place. So they set off down the darkening street, with Sandra and the painter striding ahead and Hunter and Mr. Tennyson Lee following. If you'd told Hunter he'd spent that night in the arms of a self-confessed murderer, drinking gin and listening to Billie Holiday singing the blues, he wouldn't have believed you. But as it happened, that's where he ended up. Around them, the Australian economy staggered under the assault of various foreign banks, and crowds of workers lately turned into their doppelgangers shopped angrily, consuming what they produced in a different incarnation. It seemed that the contradictions engendered by the anomalous lifestyle of the urban worker were producing a kind of psychic acid, and it rained around them in a thin mist. What do you think of this Dago dive Florentini's? Lee asked Hunter as he kicked aside a small terrier tugging on a tartan lead. Its owner shrieked and shook a fist, but was soon left behind in the tumult of confused but purposeful shoppers. Are you fond of the Italians, Mr. Hunter? I hardly know the place, Hunter yelled over the thunder of a passing truck. I haven't seen much of Sydney since, oh, ages ago. I'm a bit out of touch. Crossing against the traffic, Sandra stumbled in her high heels and a motorbike almost knocked her down. She shouted as the riders at the riders disappearing back. The noise of the revving engine made it hard to hear exactly what she'd said, but for a moment Hunter thought she'd shouted an obscenity. At Florentini's they huddled into a booth near the front, where they could not where they could look out through the misted glass at the pedestrians struggling in loose herds through the rain. The restaurant was old and dimly lit, the walls covered entirely with paintings. All badly executed, Hunter thought. Student work, apparently, from years ago. And the crockery was chipped in motley. Newcastle Hotel, said a dinner plate, and a cup and saucer claimed the parentage of the Victorian government railways. They ordered bowls of the thick spaghetti the place was known for, and a bottle of the appropriate cheap red. Then, when that was gone, a bottle or two more. I think Marston's a bully, Lovelock muttered eventually, wiping the sauce from his beard. Did you notice the way he hammered flack and poor old sturgeon? Lee pounced. Rubbish, you speak, my friend, the product of the bull. Masterson, a bully, cruel, quite the opposite. He succeeds like a lawyer, by pleading. You've both got him wrong, Sandra put in, striped, stripping off her powder blue cardigan. God, it's humid. She shook her blonde hair loose. She'd hitchhiked around the world, Greece, Afghanistan, Southeast Asia. And at 30, she'd gone back to study something vaguely masculine at night. Hunter remembered building, town planning. And though her voice had a breathy edge, she spoke confidently. No, Marston is a leader, but his strength is hypnotic. He hasn't turned his magnetism on you yet. You can He can see you're not ready to receive his insights. Like the wise rhinoceros in the fable, who refused to be hurried, he's biding his time. When that time comes, he'll turn the power of his gaze on you, and you'll wilt. She laughed suddenly. She was making fun of them, Hunter felt, though he couldn't quite see the point. Lovelock fiddled with his meagre moustache. Rhinoceros horn, he said. Now there's a kick. There's a drug to stir your blood. 
and turn your super-ego to a heap of jelly. So you've tried the famous rhino horn, my friend, said Lee. Was that during your East African sojourn, the elephant safari you spoke of so eloquently today? Rhino horn? Is that like cocaine? asked Sandra, in what Hunter realised was a faint American accent. Why hadn't he noticed it before? I'd love to try some. Do you sniff it? How's it prepared? She seemed to be leading Lovelock on. Powdered rhino horn, intoned Lovelock, like a certain gland of the marmoset and a poison secretion of the Indonesian coral whelk, is an aphrodisiac, Sandra. I'm not quite sure that your background has prepared you properly for its effects. There was something pompous about his manner. Hunter noticed Sandra's mouth tighten. What would you know about my background? She whispered angrily. Lovelock went on. I believe in undergoing all experiences, so of course I've dabbled with rhino horn. Once on the Gold Coast of Africa. Your philosophy cannot be so immature, interrupted Lee. Undergoing all experiences indeed. What of the experience of ingesting wet cement, pray tell? What of leprosy? And any fool knows that the rhino horn is not an aphrodisiac. But enough of this. Sandra, he said, you've hardly eaten. May I order you a second course? There's an old saying that a man or a woman, I presume, should eat like a king in the morning, like a prince at midday, and like a beggar at night. And look around you. The women eating like goldfish at all times, and the men like a pack of wolves. I'd be charmed, my dear Sandra, if you'd try some drunken beef with me. It would do your blood a power of good. Sandra blinked. Some what? What did you say? Did he say rump beef? Lee laughed politely and touched her arm. No, my good lady, I said drunken beef, especially of sushi's Chinese restaurant, whither I propose to take you. This Italianate monstrosity is overpowering. It is too much for a tender soul like mine. They looked around them. Florentini's was hot, smoky, and full of shouting customers. Hunter felt that he was getting drunk. I don't know about this Chinese restaurant of yours, Lovelock said, but drunken beef is in fact Japanese, a dish. De Quinty got it wrong too, but he had the excuse of being stoned on opium. He claimed he saw in a vision a boiling bat of buffalo and beer attended by Malays. In fact, it's a regional specialty of Kobe on the southern island of Japan. As usual, Lee said, the real arrogance you, you have misunderstood. We have a saying, those who speak cannot listen. Those who listen do not speak. So listen, please. Yes. I have been to Honshu in Japan, where the famous drunken beef originated, and there watched the unfortunate animals fed, and later eaten of their flesh. They are nailed firmly by the hooves to a floor of oak planks, embroideredly, Sandra went pale, and force-fed a blend of cornmeal, Irish stout, and the finest Calvados, the famous apple brandy of Normandy. When the wretched animal is plump enough, it is slaughtered by a Shinto priest. The meat is hung for the ritual period, a lunar month, and embalmed in rice vinegar. It is seared lightly and devoured as warm as the Apostle Luke's faith, as it were. By the hooves, exclaimed Sandra. By the hooves. Oh, those Orientals are so cruel. Realizing her blunder, she went red. An attractive flush spreading quickly up from her neck, which was ornamented with a string of peach-tinted pearls. Oh, fuck. I didn't mean... That is... The Chinese... They're not... The same at all? As you infer, Lee said quickly, the Japanese are different from the older Asiatic races. 
the Chinese, among whom I number some of my ancestors, are a subtler and less warlike people. In the East, the Japanese are noted for the cruelty of their women. A canard, I might add. There's a folk tale I heard once in a bar and a jazz club in Shanghai involving a faithless wife of a Japanese rice merchant. This female oaf, one night during a terrible storm, took into her house a half-drowned sailor. Her husband was away in the capital dealing in rice, tired and footsore. He broke off here, remembering the thrust of Sandra's original complaint. But you mustn't labour under the delusion, my distressed and slightly inebriated lady that it matters a whit to the hapless beast to have their feet fastened to the floor, whose are, how shall I say, integumental, like a toenail, done with care, or in the case of Japanese ranches, if we can call them that, with skill, the neighbour of care, performed with a modicum of skill, it causes the beast no pain at all. You're full of bull, Lovelock said angrily. I don't believe a bloody word you say. Show me this restaurant. They both stood, Lovelock knocking over his empty glass. Follow me, Lee said, and in a moment they had gone in a swirl of coats and scarves. Hunter reflected sadly on the bill. Let's finish that bottle, he said. I doubt they'll be back. If they do find sushis, they'll try the drunken beef. And if they don't, they'll either quarrel further or find a bar and try to patch it up. Sandra nodded, and he noticed she was upset. What's the matter? he asked. Oh, nothing, she said, blowing her nose. I've been taking various things to fix a sinus headache, and they always make me feel a bit flaky. All I wanted was a bit of fun, a glass of wine, a story, conversation, something to remind me that I'm human. And now, a fight, a quarrel, and it's over. I thought I'd left all that behind, but you never can. Isn't that right? You've been around, I can tell. Oh, the things a person can survive. It's extraordinary. The papers wouldn't believe it. She rummaged in her bag and found a bottle and spilled a heap of pills onto the table. They were brightly coloured, like beads, red and yellow ones, pale blue and black, clear capsules filled with rainbow crystals, a scattering of apricot tablets. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo, she said, and swallowed one, washing it down with a half a glass of wine. You see, when Derek, Mr. Lovelock, talked about his brother being killed by an elephant in Africa. That's what threw me, I guess, because I had a brother, and he died too. And it was my fault, because of a pizza. She swept the scattered capsules into a bag and snapped it shut. Hunter was intrigued. I thought you said you were an only child, he said. Early this evening, yes, that's true. But I also had a brother, but not anymore. I've lost... I've lost. She faltered, stopped, and started again. Sometimes I think I'm another person. So much of my life has disappeared. We were living in the States then. My dad took us there in the early 60s. He worked for an oil company in Canada, then in South Cal Southern California. I would have been uh, 12, I guess. Tony, that was my brother. What a lovely guy. Mum and dad were out and I asked Tony to get us a pizza from the takeaway place, just down the street. He took the bike. He had this big Harley Davidson. God, what a noise it made. He used to turn the engine in the yard and just sit and listen to the sound as though the bike was saying something he could understand. She dressed her handkerchief and went on. Just past the corner, near the dolphin pool, halfway home, 
A thunderbird hit him. Some rich kid whacked out on speed to a 95, the cop said. Minimum. And no lights. Poor Tony wasn't speeding. Just getting a pizza for his kid's sister. I'm awfully sorry, Hunter said. Things are hard to take at that age. He didn't want to change the conversation, so he stopped there and waited quietly. He had a feeling there was more to Sandra than she let you see at first. A strength, a complexity of character, though each new layer seemed to contradict the last. Mum and Dad never got over it. They broke up two years later. Dad took to drink, I guess. Mum took to men. And they weren't my parents, not my real ones. That came out. When Tony died, they told me. And later, back in Sydney, I searched through the papers and sure enough, there was a story. I was famous at the age of one. Tot survives bizarre tragedy. That's what the papers said. And worse things. My real parents were religious. My father was a lay preacher with the Plymouth Brethren, fundamentalists, in a bush town miles from anywhere. I guess we each have to find a faith to fit our needs, like those molecules that lock together in a certain way. But what needs are satisfied by that loony, punitive rigmarole? I found out later that he thought the baby, me, I wasn't his. My mother had a lover, he believed. Who knows? What does it matter now? They were driving fast along a bush track at dusk, going to some gathering. The car full of Bibles, the papers said, and, I imagine this, arguing, fighting. Around a bend, some timber cutters were jinking a large tree out of a gully, and for a few minutes the steel rope stretched out tight across the road. Why wasn't there a lookout? Perhaps there was, and they drove right through, shouting, quarrelling. God knows. The cable cut straight through the car, decapitating both of them. I was asleep at the time, in a basket on the back seat. One of the papers, I looked it up, said, Father's head and baby's basket. Can you believe that? Isn't that sick? Who would write a thing like that? So I was an orphan, and my other parents chose me. Chose me. I wasn't forced on them like now, with adopted babies incognito. Chose me from the orphan's home when I was one like choosing a puppy from the dog pound to save it from the needle. So, travel, and America, and Tony's death. He was an orphan too. His parents had been killed in New Guinea, in the war. I hated America at first, when Tony died. What had happened, but I got used to it. I found a sweetheart, a school romance. We were too young. I know that now. My parents tried to talk me out of it, but how can you talk to a teenage kid? He was weak, I can see that now. But back then, all I could see was his brown eyes, just like my brother's, and his kindness. We were happy, for a while. We got caught up in that hippie thing, smoked a lot of dope. We both wanted a baby, but it seemed I couldn't have one, for some reason. Terry, that was my husband's name, he got into bikes more and more. It was a thing the ballet kids were doing then. He dropped out of a couple of jobs computer programming, office work, then working in a lumberyard, but he just couldn't hack it. The routine, he said. He joined a gang, the Wreckers. I had to go along with it. I had nothing else, did I? I had to follow where he went or I'd have lost him. Well, I lost him in the end anyhow. The gang leader was a guy called Big Bob, a pilot, someone said, in Korea, but he dropped out like the rest of us. He had a silver medal that he wore sewn onto his jacket upside down that he called his dead men money. He'd been voted leader of the pack, 
but you could tell he didn't want the job. He liked to be alone. He had this hut where he went fishing in the spring and lay about and read philosophy, he said. But all I saw were fishing magazines. A year or so went by, you know, with bikers. They say they're bad and violent, yet all I can remember is the peaceful times. Talking, drinking, beer, washing up. Like a summer camp or a family on a holiday that never ended. And then Bob had this... Accident? Sandra swelled her wine and stared into the... Stared into it like someone who looks like a crystal ball and sees something awful taking shape. We took our bikes out, six of us. Four bikes for a picnic in the country. And on the way home, in a valley in the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas, we came across a flat stretch of road. The lights of a homestead or two, no traffic, and the highway like a strip of ribbon. It was just on twilight and Big Bob stopped and looked back the way he would come. It was perfect for a game of chicken. Blue Angels, they call it. This acrobatic trick they'd seen on television. Two bikes would ride off a while, a mile or so, while the others waited. Then they'd turn back, and both pairs of bikes would race at each other like... She interlaced her fingers, like so, passing one between the other pair at 90 or 100 miles an hour. It takes a split second and one mistake, the slightest wobble. Well, you can imagine. The darkness seemed to come on quickly. It was cold. This was in the fall. So he switched the lights on. Go, Drake, says Bob. And the other bikes took off. Drake on one, then Hogan and Maybell, and that hammering sound the motors make faded away down the stretch of blacktop. It grew quiet and peaceful, just our engines turning over softly, and I heard a bird whistling and chirping in the grass at the side of the road. Terry and me on one bike, Bob on the other, waiting, the sunset like a big purple blanket, the whole world fading into darkness. You could see the stars coming out, one by one, like lamps being lit. The air was so clear and it was so lonely there, like the floor of heaven. There they are, said Bob, and revved up, and was gone in a scattering of gravel. It took us 500 yards to catch him. I'll take the centre, he yelled. You take the wing and he tilted the bike to steer right between the pair of lights. My God, the noise, a rolling thunder, except the headlights. It was a truck loaded up with logs from Oregon hurrying to get home to Oakland. We heard the horn just before he hit. That sound, like an animal in hell, howling. There were tears in her eyes, just visible, but she blinked a few times and they were gone. Hunter started to speak, then hesitated. What could he possibly say? Sandra sniffed then took out a compact and looked at herself and pursed her lips. Worst things happen, she said cryptically, and snapped the compact shut. Anyhow, the second-in-command took over. Drake, his name was. He was with us the night Bob, Big Bob was killed. He was a strange guy. Like Charlie Manson, but not so sick, or twisted, or as vicious. Drake had a strange power over men or women. Anyone, it didn't matter. Charisma, they call it. Even animals, he could tame a Doberman just by talking to it real quiet. I saw him do it, to a dog, guard dog in a timber yard. Well, most of the gang would just wipe out for a good time. Parties, drinking. Drake was different. He had a purpose. Sex, drugs, Nazi insignia, like a religion on the upside down. And he kept bullying and pushing. He soon twisted the gang around. Some left. The others who stayed... Lost people like Terry and me, sadists like Hogan and silly Maybell. We are a crew of losers, ragged, 
dirty, our minds are all slightly wrong. I think it was the drugs that did it. That sent us off the planet into space. I know I'm a strong person underneath, but in those days I was out to lunch. Maybe I disappeared for a week one time, out in the desert, and came back crazy. She picked up a rich old man, some insurance executive from New Haven, who was holidaying for a while in Reno. So she was staying at the Gambler's Rest, a classy motel way out of town. She said she was half drunk and half asleep when a purple flash lit up the room, flooding in through the windows, and when she went to look, it was a spaceship, and they took her abroad. And she passed out. They wanted to breed with Earth people, these things with large pale heads. They put Maybell in a tank of fluid and wired her up, and took out her memories, then put them back with a new personality. They carried out sexual experiments while she was hypnotized, she said, and taught her the language that they used in the history of their planet, blah, blah. Then sent her back to wait among the people of Earth. Imagine a biker's mole chosen to be the, an alien John the Baptist to make straight the way in California. Oh, the things you believe. And Maybell. Two or three times a day, you'd catch her with her head tilted on one side like a bird, listening. How are things, Mabel? I said once, and she answered. I'm listening to the voices in the radio. They're speaking to me, not to you, so get lost. One time, from the washing machine, she heard them. One time in her jaw. She cried out and said, My teeth are buzzing! Stop it! And it was them again, talking from a filling in her tooth, babbling and chattering through the static with baffled messages and weird instructions. Like one time they told her to cut off her hair. Then she did. Another time to fetch 30 pounds of chicken livers from some bird ranch in Oregon. God, the smell. Crazy errands like that. When we laughed at the things she had to do, biting all the dogs she saw one day, washing her hands 20 times another, she just shrugged and said, They're testing me. We believed it, or we went along. What's the difference? We were stoned most of the time and aimless or rather running in a circle after Drake doing what he said. There was a lot of nasty sex. Well, I don't want to talk about that. And a killing once. At least Hogan boasted he and Drake killed a member of a rival gang, but they lied about so many things. Who knew the truth? Our personalities had been knocked a little out of whack. I wouldn't say brainwashed exactly, but it was close. We all felt the same. Breathless, waiting for something to happen that would lift us right up into the air. Then the trek. That's what he called it. Just then a waitress came up. Excuse me, sir, she said to Hunter, but we're closing up. Indeed, Florenzini's was nearly empty, the last few customers gathering their coats. Hunter paid the bill and they left. There's a place down near the water. Let's get a coffee, Sandra said. So they wandered downhill through the rain-wet streets. Two hundred years ago, a creek bed would have led them to the bay. Now tram tracks and cobbles buried under asphalt led them under half-lit tower blocks past locked trucks, cafes shutting up, pawn shops and fire insurance offices to the oily waters of the harbour. The crowds had thinned out, the streets were dark, but they found a coffee shop still open and they took a small booth near the front. They could see the quay through the glass and the last ferries nosing into dock and rest on the black, rocking water. The waiter, in a strange, insistent voice, asked if they wanted coffee or... He spoke lower, or a special coffee. Oh, the special, Sandra said brightly. And he brought them something in a cup, a drink that wasn't coffee, but a kind of liqueur. Vermouth, Sandra whispered, but it wasn't any vermouth Hunter recognized, pungent, dark and sugary like a mug of port. The trek, Hunter nudged, nudged. you were saying? The trek was Drake's idea, she said. 
He called it his life's work. He spoke of it in biblical terms, but when he looked at it, we were just a pack of bikers on a run. He would cr- it would cross the states like a rattlesnake. Las Vegas, Amarillo, Albuquerque, Route 66 in the sun to Oklahoma City, then Memphis. You could say it was a flight into Egypt. So we ended up in Alabama. Drake had spent his childhood there, an orphan, in this big old house that used to be a mansion before the Civil War. Here Hunter went to say something, but thought better of it. Alabama, but the back blocks, Sandra continued. Dirt roads, rusting automobiles, weeds thrusting up through everything, scrawny chickens running through the grass. So we ended up one evening in the ruined garden of the place where Drake had grown up. As a boy, he told us, he'd found a tunnel that led under the main house down a hundred feet into a limestone cave. And in a heap of rubbish and broken wood, he'd found an old diary and a pistol. And in this diary was a message, he said, that seemed to indicate that a treasure, money stolen from the southern armies at the end of the Civil War, was deeper down behind a dynamited rock wall. There were only three of us by then. Half the gang had got into a fight in Memphis and ended up in jail, including Terry. Well, by that time Terry and I had broken up. Christ, life was a mess. Where was I? And Hogan had smashed a leg passing too close to a circus truck in Texas. So Maybell and I were sitting there in the dark, holding a flashlight and an old sack of detonators. Whiskey and a plunger dangling a wire that thread down to the labyrinth where Drake was placing his explosives to blow away the rock. Forty-seven sticks of gel of night. He was bright, Drake, but twisted. And he had this obsession about prime numbers. So exactly forty-seven sticks, no more or less. It was gloomy in there under the moss and the shadow of the trees. I was brooding, listening to the crickets and praying he wouldn't be discovered by the cops. When Maybell tilted up her head, said out loud, Yes, master. Well, I freaked out. What the fuck is going on? I whispered. She stared at me with a crazy smile. Her eyes seemed to light up in the dark. And I believed, then, about the aliens. Sandra, she said, the waiting is over. Now I know what to do. The plunger. You have to push the blasting plunger when they give me the signal. Drake, they know him as the enemy of light. He let Bob die that night. We were with Drake when the truck went by. We saw him guess, the dark, the headlights. But he made us wait, hypnotized. His number's 47, of years on planet Earth, and 47 murders among men. His life had raveled out its thread, and he shall die. Wait. She tilted her head the other way, and seemed to listen to the Harley Davidson parked beside her in the leaves, the metal ticking as the engine cooled, and in the bizarre fright of that moment, I knew Maybelle was right. She said, now, and time disappeared, like a piece clipped from a ribbon, between the now and the plunger, there was no time. A moment of decision, nothing, just the handle going down, and a thump from far off, deep under the ground. There was a long silence, Hunter heard a foghorn far out on the water, and the swish of passing tires on the road. It had been raining. Liquid pools of colour cycled through green amber, red as the traffic stopped and started at the corner. The waiter brought another special coffee, without being asked. The stuffy air was full of smoke. Heart, Hunter's heart was pounding and he felt out of breath. Just as Sandra started to speak again, the door banged open. It was Mr. Lee and Lovelock, arm in arm, carrying a bottle each and laughing. Hunter noticed that Lee had a bandage dropped around his right ear, and Lovelock looked rather bruised about the face. Sushi is the name, the nom de plume, said Mr. Lee, of a friend of mine, a master cook. Here Lovelock interrupted, not of drunken beef, and Lee went on, master cook, a poet, a diplomat, 
They sat down, squeezed into the space that Sandra was pressed against Hunter. She looked into his eyes. Hi, she said. A jukebox that Hunter hadn't noticed in the corner at the back began a quiet jazz trio piece. He felt strangely happy. When Sushi's not cooking, he's drinking, said Lee, and all the while composing poems. He's a lovely one. Please excuse my feeble translation. The harbour flows always to the east. The waters have drowned many lives, many sailors, poets, and gentlemen. However sad, the waters keep flowing. Perhaps these sentiments are silly, and I am foolish with my grey hair. Life passes like a dream, so I drink to the harbour, and the moon, this wine. Sandra laughed, her light face to the light, a full clear laugh that gave Hunter a catch in his throat. They opened the bottle and poured their glasses full. To good cooks, Lee said, and they drank. Hunter put his arm around Sandra's shoulder. The brandy had a sweetness and a bite and a faint sparkle on the tongue. Sandra raised her glass. Here's to the sailors, the poets, and the gentlemen, she said. They drank again. The music seemed to slacken its tempo, the drums pulling the bass back, and then the bass slowly, slowing, lifting the piano's embroidery, the way a wave might raise a line of bubbles into a brief rippling crest of foam. So thought Hunter, tasting his drink. Out across the cold moonlight waters of the harbour, where the last ferry is motors turning slowly, made for home. And so on to the commentary. If you've made it this far, thank you very much. Um, that was a long poem to read out loud. Um, and because I read these things in one take and I don't edit, I do apologise for those like weird gaps and tripping up. Um, I really like this poem, which is why I spent the last half hour reading And I hope I conveyed some of what's really good about it. The storytelling is so good. The way Tranter goes from the scene of the narrators talking to, you know, Sandra in America killing that guy with dynamite, which is weird because it kind of just, she tells him that and then Lovelock and Lee rock up and then Hunter, who's just been told she killed a guy, his drunken reaction is to put his arm around her and be quite content with the scene. Um, Now, that's a poem, it's in a book of poems. There's not a lot of rhyme or rhythm to it. And I mean, you don't have to have rhyme for it to be poetry, but I feel like there's something actually about that. There's a quality of that poem, and I guess I feel like it's one of those things where the storytelling is the poetry, or the way he does the storytelling is the poetry. Because if you look at I mean, it looks like a poem. He lays out there are stanzas, there are. The line breaks are there for more than just line breaks, you know, they actually do serve a purpose in terms of um, the way the story is paced out and the way the kind of, you have to get the next line to read it, so it adds a level of suspense or it changes the way you read it, and I guess that's the, the point of it. Um, I mean, I again, I'm just going to reiterate this, I really like the story of this poem, it's really long, but it's really worth reading. Um, I'm going to keep the commentary short, so I'm going to, I'm going to leave it there. Uh, thank you again for listening to this commentary, and thank you again for listening to the poem. Um, if you've enjoyed this, I would appreciate, you know, a, a review on iTunes or wherever this podcast, where you're listening to this podcast, um, or share it with your friends, or, you know, even if you just want to drop me a line, and you know, if there's a poem you think I should read, or you've got some constructive criticism, I'd love to hear it. Thank you for listening.